morning, Woodland Hills. Good to see all you guys. Thanks to all you guys for who are joining online. Glad you're part of this. Uh, let me just say a word about that fundraiser that uh, Danny was just talking about. Um, it, this, this, this subtle concept of uh, churches uh, uh, welcoming, you know, reaching out to the homeless community and having settled communities and churches uh, joining together to help build these things. Church, this, this idea of the church actually caring about and doing something about homelessness is beautiful. It's radical. It shouldn't be radical. It should be like, of course, but unfortunately it's kind of radical, but it's beautiful. And, and, and so the concept here is that, that our unused space here could, I think this thing's going to take off. It will take some time, but it's going to take off. And other churches adopting this already here in the Twin Cities. There's other churches saying, we want to be part of this and joining in. And, and, and we thought that would be a beautiful hub where, you know, for, to bring, bring together people to manufacture these, these, these tiny homes and then send them out. You know, so, so we can become a hub for this movement. So uh, I really encourage you to give to this. Uh, nothing comes for free, uh, especially in the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom starts with our first drop of blood. But I encourage you to sacrifice to make this happen because it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, today, oh, before I, I, we get into the talk, a uh, little prelim, a little advertisement. Uh, starting next week, we're going to have a little series uh, that is... Uh, put on by the Jesus Collective. Now, if you haven't heard of the Jesus Collective, this is this organization that is here to service this movement that's going on around the globe that we are a part of. The movement of a Jesus-looking God raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And uh, it's a beautiful movement, and this Jesus Collective is a beautiful organization to serve this, this uh, uh, movement. Um, the basic idea, it, it started with you know, Brex and I and Paul 20 years ago talking about what if, what if, what if, and now it's coming to being. And Woodland Hills is, is part of, of creating this thing. Um, uh, we're giving the, you know, helping to form the theology of this. Uh, but it really feels like we found our tribe. Uh, for, for almost two years now, we've been participating in classes that we're sponsoring and conferences and things. And it's just got that kingdom flavor. It it's, it's, feels like our tribe. We'd look for a tribe for a while. We looked at maybe possibly joining the Mennonites and maybe possibly joining the Brethren in Christ. And, and, and there's a lot of great organizations out there that believe kind of what we believe. They're Anabaptists, pretty much. Um, but it, it, it's the analogy I use. It's like when you're dating somebody, and, and uh, we'll be talking about dating a little later on. But when you're dating somebody, and, and they're really attractive, and they, they're like, boy, this is a, the real package, but you can't stand the baggage that comes with them. <laughs> and everyone's got baggage as part of the marriage equation. It's like, oh, pros and cons. Oh, okay, I'll go. Uh, well, but we just never, there's baggage, and we don't want to, you know, get involved in all their baggage. Um, this Jesus Collective, it's not a denomination. It's a more of a fellowship and organization to try to rally this movement. But it's, it's, it's not just uh, are we on the same page in terms of our beliefs, but on the same page in terms of our culture, in terms of the values, the things we stand for, the things we care about, and things like that. Uh, so there'll be three speakers from, over the next three weeks, followed by a panel. And each of the panels has uh, representation from Woodland Hills. Uh, I'll be uh, on the panel next week talking about the message. Uh, you'll be hearing from three incredible preachers who represent part of the Jesus movement. They're all younger folks. Uh, the first one uh, next week will be Hank uh, 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 Johnson, who is uh, um, uh, a African-American uh, Anabaptist preacher, and he's incredible. Uh, and then there's two women that, that follow after that. One is Megan Good, a good friend of mine, who's one of the best uh, speakers and storytellers I've ever uh, heard in my life. So you want to be part of that. And, and it's also kind of introducing you to the, 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 the broader family. It's kind of casting a vision and seeing kind of what we're, we're, we're joining here. So I encourage you to be tuning in for the next three weeks as we'll have these uh, representations from the Jesus Collective followed by a panel. Oshita will be on one of the panels. Shauna's on one of the panels. It's just going to be great. So, so be there. So this morning, 
Uh, we, we, we're finishing up this, this series that we've had on, on sex and marriage and divorce. And uh, we thought it would be good to have a, a, a panel discussion around this. Uh, we had invited Emily, uh, who gave part of a message several weeks ago on, on singleness that was just so good, so good. Well done, Emily. But unfortunately, she's sick. So she, she won't be joining us. So, so who is joining us is Lambers Fisher. He's a, a therapist and a great guy all around. And I just learned this morning that he can dance really good, even though he's kind of shy. <laughs> oh, and when no one's looking, man, he's out there dancing around. <laughs> you're, you're busted. And we have uh, uh, Paul Eddy. Uh, all you know Paul Eddy. And he is joining us live from Florida. <laughs> Hello, Paul. <laughs> What's the temperature, Paul? Uh, it's a mere 81 degrees. We're suffering here. In okay, let, let, let's, let's all boo at the same time. Boo! <laughs> boo! <laughs> all right, well, uh, well we, 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 we forgive you. Uh, I just, you know, evangelize down there. Uh, so this is our first hybrid service. We're actually having a service where we're having, you know, it's partly technology, partly live, and uh, that'll be becoming more common as we go forward here because this is the, the new reality that we're living in. So we're going to talk about very, I, I want to say this before we even jump into these topics. Um, Jesus' teaching on, on a lot of topics is, is countercultural. Uh, I say his teaching on, on nonviolence and loving enemies uh, is his most radical teaching, and we're really big on passion on that one. And his teaching on sex and marriage is, is uh, I think, it, it hasn't traditionally been that radical because it's what most cultures have practiced. But in our culture, our culture is so sexualized, as you know. Uh, sex invades everything. It's just, we, we use it to sell products. We, you know, it's, it's everywhere that his teachings sound really radical to most people in this culture. I uh, had a couple who... Uh, this is about 10 years ago, who, who a young couple, they, 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 they came to Christ together. Just, a, I love, these, they're just so adorable and so naive and so, you know, don't know what's going on. And they came up to me after the service one time and, and, and they were, they, they said that, you know, their boyfriend and girlfriend, and, and last night, uh, before they went to bed, uh, they were reading the Bible together um, and, and uh, they had a question uh, about uh, what it means to be sober-minded because it turns out the boyfriend really enjoys his pot. But he enjoys it like from morning to night. And the girlfriend was having trouble with this to start with. But then she read that the Bible says be sober-minded. And so since they both agreed to go by the Bible, they asked me, you know, would that include like getting high on pot? Uh, and, and I said, well, you know, look, if, 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 it's, if it's interfering with your life, then you got a problem. And the girlfriend said, well, he can't hold down a job. I said, so you got a problem. Okay, so let's talk about that. <laughs> but they didn't invite me to, to talk about their going to bed together that, that night. It, it didn't even occur to them that that was an issue. Now, about four months later, this couple that still reads the Bible every night, they came to me with another question. And, and, and they said, last night we were reading the Bible, we came upon this word, fornication. And we didn't know what that meant, so we looked it up. And it turns out it means sex before marriage. And so I think, the girlfriend said, that we're not supposed to have sex before marriage. And the boyfriend was like, no way. And by the way, at this point, he had sobered up, right? So he, he, he was clean. <laughs> he was like, no way. What, what, what's up with that? And he was just shocked by it. And so we had a nice discussion around this. Uh, and it turned out very well. But that's kind of the, 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 the talk today may, at some points, strike you some of that way. You've got to be kidding me. It sounds, it sounds so puritanical, so, so prissy, given the standards of our culture. Uh, I encourage you just to keep an open mind. And just receive the word, like this young couple did. Um, and, and on that note, I'll just say this. As we're talking about these things, these are all, we, as a collective, we aspire to abide by the teachings of Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness. But it's an aspiration. 
And so we're heading in this direction. And, and so when we, we, we look at leadership, you know, and, and, and filling those kind of positions, uh, we ask questions about how much does your life conform to the ideals that we're striving for? Because we have to lead with our lives. But we're not moralistic police where we're going to go around, you know, asking everybody, uh, are you guys married? Are you guys, you know, that's, no, that's, that, that's, we have always had this teaching here that unless someone's invited you into their life, to the degree that they've invited you into their life, um, if that isn't the case, then you have one opinion of them, and that is that they are worth Jesus dying for. And so we're not going around inspecting who's doing what or whatever. Uh, just we ask people to t- receive this, and you have to ponder this. You have to say, how does this apply to my life? You have to say, you know, I, I, what am I going to do with this? That's, that's you and your community. Uh, but this is about the kind of ideals that we stand for. All right? All right. So, Paul, let's start with you, Mr. Florida man. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about in this series is how... Uh, Today, we have kind of this idol of the nuclear family, and it's a new creation in, in, in history, but it's become kind of a, the, the norm. If you're, if you're normal, then you'll get married, and you'll have babies, and live happily ever after, or something along those lines. How did the church historically get to the place where, where it, it, that's become so normative that singleness is looked down upon, is, 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 or seen as somehow being somewhat defective or weird or off? Yeah. Great question, and uh, honestly, that, that question, I think, is part of a larger question of just how has the church, throughout its 2,000-year history, uh, seen marriage? How, how has it envisioned marriage? And uh, the research I've done on this, I'll be honest, it's been a little disheartening, though not entirely surprising. My sense is that the church, in its entire 2,000-year history, has never really developed a distinctly kingdom model of marriage. Rather, what happened from very early on, and I'm talking like early second century, like you know, not long after Jesus left, what I think happened is the church looked at the culture around it, its culture, and it, it adopted the model of marriage that it saw. That seemed pretty normal to it. And then it would try to tack Jesus on, uh, you know, Jesify it a little bit here and there but not really overhaul uh, to, a, to a, a, a new vision of marriage. So, for example, uh, in the early church, uh, and again, very early on, the church began to develop <clears throat> what I would call a pretty negative view of both sex and marriage. And we see this, uh, again, second, third, fourth century, and, and even on. Uh, Tatian, who is a... a rather well-known Christian leader in the second century, said that marriage was corruption and fornication. Uh, He did not like marriage. Uh, There's something that happened in the fourth century known as the Jovinian controversy. Now, Jovinian was a Christian guy who simply argued this, that you could be just as pleasing to God married as you could be single. And that so disturbed most of the church they proclaimed him a heretic. (laughs) In in other words, singleness was the idol back in the early church, and marriage was looked at as for weak people who couldn't follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was single, and we should follow Jesus. Mm. Now, I think if we press a little harder, why did they really believe this? It isn't because Jesus taught this, right? Jesus taught there's different gifts for different people. What, what they were doing, I believe, is they were buying into their Greco-Roman philosophy of the day that really looked down on things like sexual passion, romantic passion, and marriage. And so they absorbed the culture and 
kind of made it part of Christianity. Let's fast forward now up to today. Uh, we have taken the ancient church's script of marriage and literally flipped it on its head, right? No longer is it singleness that we, that we all uh, hope to be. It's rather, uh, if you talk to most people today in the church, boy, without uh, hope of a romantic marriage, a romantic relationship, sex and marriage, it's like, wow, how, how are you going to find happiness and fulfillment? We, we've basically, at least many of us in the church, uh, traded an idolatry of singleness for an idolatry of marriage so that now if you're single, it's like seen as this uh, cursed state and a, uh, something to be pitied. And so once again, we've allowed, Greg, you named it, the sexualization of our culture and the romantic period, uh, 18th century European Western thought to really influence the last 200 years of, of church culture the question is, how can we recapture an actual Jesus-centered model where both marriage and being unmarried are, are have equal dignity, value, and worth, and it's about what God's called you to? So what you say about that, uh, practically, what can we do to begin to, to change things? Uh, Lambert, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, actually make being single a feasible, attractive option for people. Sure, sure. Practically speaking, uh, taking all that history and knowing how things have come to be does help. It helps us kind of remind ourselves that this isn't just the way, the obvious way, as opposed to a progression over time. And then the question is, what do we do about that today? If we put ourselves in the shoes of uh, somebody who's single versus somebody who's married, and you see this kind of opposing, polarized kind of view, well, I got it the better way. No, I got it the better way. Well, I can do this. <laughs> I can do that. You can't. Then we miss out on the opportunity to come together as a whole. Like, like Paul said, uh, the, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus' focus is there's different gifts for everybody. Mm -hmm. So if we are trying to make everybody feel welcome and valued in the same way, then we change the conversation. It's like, oh, you're single. So that means you get to have this, the, the different uh, ways of using your schedule, different opportunities for ministry, different opportunities for relationships mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Versus with married couples, uh, even as being a married couple, as a marriage and family therapist, focus on how can you find time to spend together, right. find times to do what you want to do. There's pros and cons. Well, you get a certain type of companionship. Well, I get to hang out with more friends than you do. <laughs> There's various ways. And if we take it out of the right versus wrong, then we can make everybody feel welcome. How do we make singleness feasible? Well, we change the language. Hmm. How are we talking about? It's like, oh, you're single. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. As opposed to, hey, make the most of the time. Whether that's a short amount of time or a long amount of time, cool. I, I see that you're making good decisions. You didn't just jump into something just because it was convenient and you got impatient. Nice going. Let me know when that changes, if that changes at all. And if it doesn't, make the most of it. Like, change the language. Good. And even then, how we invite people. It's not just, well, we accept it as an acceptable place as opposed to inviting people, welcoming. Well, we automatically have this couples thing going on. Maybe, does it have to be a couples thing? No, it started off as a couples thing. We got so-and-so who isn't a pair-it-up per se. Let's not make it a pair-it-up thing. It doesn't have to be a double trip date, let's mm. invite, let's welcome people. So not make people feel like they're on the outside unless. So if we change the language and we change how we're welcoming people, then everybody can feel just as part of the kingdom, Good. which is the whole point in the first place. I, I, I love what, what Emily said a couple weeks ago when she talked about having a, a, a reframe to see the church, and this isn't a reframe, it should be the original frame because it's in the New Testament, but to see the church as family yes. and that we're family first. 
uh, that yeah, we're brothers and sisters, uh, born from above by Abba Father. We've got Abba Father's DNA running through us. And that's our, that's our identity before we're married or single. Exactly. And, 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 and I, that, that reframe is, is a real equalizing thing. When you get to family, go, go to family gatherings, you don't divide up according to who's married or who's not. Exactly. No, family hangs together. And so we're going to be tearing down those, those, those walls like that. So there's pros and cons to being single and pros and cons to being married. And, and Paul and Jesus both talk about that. Um, but one of the big pros for being married is, and I should say, one of the great cons for being single is uh, you don't get to have sex. <laughs> that, that's a pretty big con for a lot of folks. Little thing here. It's uh, so a Paul. Um, you know, in Scripture, there's things that are time, part of the timeless message, and there are then there's also the cultural packaging. And we talk a lot about that here when it talks about you know, women not having authority over men. If you look at the cultural conditions, you understand why that was appropriate for that culture, but it's not a timeless principle. So why think that this idea that, that you should reserve sex for marriage, uh, couldn't that be part of the Bible's cultural packaging? That now that we are in our culture, we can let go of that. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, really important question, both for sexuality and a million other ethical issues today. Um, thankfully, uh, biblical scholars have helped us by devising some criteria or some tests by which we can distinguish uh, issues that the Bible discusses as either being what we could call transcultural principles, things that apply to all Christians of all times and all places, or something that might be a culturally relative application that won't apply to all times. And I'll just mention uh, just a couple of these tests that are really helpful. One is, uh, when you're dealing with an issue in the Bible, does the Bible itself speak consistently or inconsistently about that topic? If it's inconsistent on the Bible's teachings, that's a good indication that it's probably culturally relative, because there's a number of, of different cultures expressed in the Bible. Um, another, another good criteria. Uh, does the Bible itself point to the need for a cultural transformation on this particular topic? I think that slavery, for example, is a great example of this. Um, you know, people will say, oh, Paul never should have said, slaves obey your masters in Ephesians 6.5, because white slave owners, centuries later in America, used that verse to justify slavery. Well, here's the thing. Yes, Paul said that in the context of the first generation of the early little churches because he couldn't take on the entire Roman slavery system in the first generation of Christianity. But what Paul did do is he wrote the book of Philemon, a book to a Christian who had a slave, and he taught Philemon, this is your brother. Uh, in fact, let this brother come and work with me for the gospel. So Paul planted seeds that would flower into an anti-slavery message. We've got to pay attention to those sorts of things. And finally, um, when we look at an issue in the Bible, is it specific to a particular covenant? Or does it, uh, is, it, does it is it found from, let's say, Genesis to Revelation across all the covenants, Old and New Testaments? So these are some of the tests we'd want to look at. When we look at the teachings of Scripture on sexual intimacy, how the Bible treats sexual intimacy, what we find I would propose, is a consistent view, not inconsistent, but consistent, that sexual intimacy is connected to, in some way, this, this relationship we call marriage. 
Now, we can see that from, I would argue, Genesis chapter 2, the creation text, right through the uh, Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, up to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, and right into Paul's teachings in those rich three chapters on sexuality, 1 Corinthians 5 to 7. All of it ties sex, sexual intimacy, to uh, the marriage relationship. Now, the question is why? Is this just an old-fashioned idea, or does it really apply to something today? I propose if we understand the logic behind it, it makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if anyone's interested in this, there's a really, really good book on this by Gordon Hugenberger called Marriage as a Covenant. And see, that's the point. I think what Scripture shows us is that marriage is a covenant relationship. At least it should be. Not a contractual relationship where... Uh, self-centered parties enter it for, for their own well-being, but rather a committed covenant relationship focused on other-oriented agape love. And what it seems that God has done is when he designed the covenant of marriage, and see, God does this for all covenants. Every one of God's covenants has a covenant sign that God picks and attaches to it. What a covenant sign is is basically... A, uh, an ongoing symbolic act that ratifies and reaffirms the covenant promises that one has made in that particular covenant. So the rainbow is the covenant sign of Noah's covenant. Uh, the Lord's Supper, the covenant sign of our new covenant with Jesus. Well, when it comes to sexual intimacy, it turns out that God in Scripture clearly has chosen sexual intimacy to be the covenant sign of the marriage covenant. In other words, um, getting married is basically a two-part process. Publicly saying, I do, with our words in front of our community, and then privately saying, I do, to each other mm -hmm. with our bodies in a private ceremony consummating the marriage. And so this raises the question, what is sex outside of marriage? I think, biblically speaking, what we'd have to say is that sex outside of marriage is saying, I do with our bodies, when we haven't said, I do with our words. And then uh, one, one theologian put it, sex outside of marriage is basically telling lies to each other with our bodies, because it's huh. not within the protective bounds of a covenant relationship. That's good. I like that. It's, it's, it's telling lies with our bodies. That's an interesting concept. Wow. Um, and there's also, a, a, you know, this, this, uh, there's something ontological that happens when people come together. And that's another uh, argument, I think, that this, isn't a, th this is a transcultural reality. Uh, there's a one fleshing that takes place, uh, what God has joined together. And, and, and there's nothing culturally conditioned about that. So that, that's why at Woodland Hills we hold to this traditional view. Uh, that's part of our ideals, our understanding of what, what sex is all about. But it leaves open this question, though, you know, what is sex? Okay, now, and, and now Paul, you, you've been a professor. I was a professor for, I still am, uh, uh, down at Northern. Uh, but with older kids, when you get in with college kids, you get this question a lot. What exactly is fornication? And, and I, have, I was blown away by you know, several times ki people, kids would confide in me about what's going on in their relationships and they want to know, is this okay? And the idea is that as long as we don't have you know, penal penetration, well, then, then it's not really sex. 
Uh, and, and some of the things that they would do, uh, short of that, well, really isn't short of that at all, but, but uh, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it makes some married couples blush. <laughs> but in, in the, in the, it's like kind of loophole thinking. Uh, so, Lambert, why don't you take this one? What is, what is fornication? <laughs> You're a therapist. <laughs> the therapeutic perspective of what is fornication. Uh, what is, uh, yeah, I, I, what, what's wrong with that thinking, I should say? Well, well outside of def- definitions <laughs> that can be debated uh, in academic circles, uh, the, the focus, I like to take things out of the focus of just one definition, right or wrong. You've either made it or you haven't. You've either done it right or it's all wrong. And focus on the implications of it. You can talk about the, the covenant relationship and what it, the intended purpose is. And if you remind yourself of that, then it changes the conversation. It changes the conversation from what I can and can't do, right or wrong, or all is lost, as opposed to what am I really striving for? Not what I can't um, do, what you're saying, I can't have that contractual uh, covenant versus contractual relationship. You've broken the contract, the terms, uh, because these are the exact lines, you know, what it is versus what it isn't, as opposed to what should I be ascri- uh, ascribing to as a pertains to a relationship. And so a lot of times I think about um, uh, marriage relationships as I get to uh, do marriage counseling uh, a lot. And I see relationships struggling in a lot of different ways. Communication, uh, conflict resolution, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to sex and intimacy, a lot of times you have two people who really care about each other, really love each other, want to be completely vulnerable with each other. But other things get in the way. And sometimes what gets in the way is their past history and how many sexual partners they've uh. had before. Not just, well, what's the number versus not, uh, but what isn't. As opposed to things like, well, Lambert, I'm kind of struggling with uh, feeling like she's really into it, feeling like she's really with me because she doesn't make these movements. She doesn't make these sounds. All of my other partners before that mm-hmm. let me know that I was doing the right thing because uh-huh. they did this. And she's like, I'm being me, but I'm being compared to everybody that yeah. came before. And one of those things you can make your life easier and your partner's life easier is by reducing the amount of comparisons that happened long before. That's not about a right or wrong kind of thing. It's about thinking, what gift can I give to my future partner? Not necessarily the predestined one person that I gotta find, yeah. or, but that one who I choose to settle down with, what gift can I give less baggage? Uh, not necessarily zero versus anything else, but as little as reasonably possible uh, to compare them to, to, so it can be just me vulnerably being you and you set the standard. Your body type isn't compared to all the other body types. I had multiple people who were genuinely, and they can't say it anywhere outside of the safe space of a therapy room, but they can say, I, I can't even say it with my wife. Here, uh, the guy will say, well, somebody, I, I use, uh, I'm a personal trainer, I'm this and that, I'm, I'm a model. I, I'm used to dating tens, and then I fell in love with a seven. I can never tell her she's a seven. But I fell in love with her. She's a seven. But I'm struggling with the fact that when we're sexually intimate, I'm thinking of, I've been with tens. Don't you want to try to be a ten? Oh. And it's like, oh. The, and he's genuinely saying, I don't want to see her that way. I want to be with just her. I've chosen her. But, and all that starts with how many comparisons happened sure. beforehand, let alone all the type of situations where they're with each other sexually and the, the lights are out or, or they're just closing their eyes and all of a sudden picture pops into the head of somebody that happened before. Uh, the past experiences, a movement, a feeling, a thought, and they don't want to do that, but there's these conflicting things that get in the way that stop us from truly being vulnerable, from embracing that covenant, for mm. it to be just me and just you in that moment, me, you, and God, however you want to view it in that moment. And that I view all the way back at the beginning of why even have all these covenant considerations? Why even have all this? This is a battle which can't and cannot do, as opposed to what standard are we setting? 
for ourselves? How can we start early on to say, I want to prepare not only in my, uh, my job and my career and, and with everything I do, I want to set myself up to offer the best version of me to my future partner. It's not about who else will see. Only me and that person will know, but I want to give myself as little baggage as possible. That will guide my interactions, not uh, being caught or I broke the rule right, right. as opposed to setting a standard and say, hey, I love you. You love me. You weren't perfect. I wasn't perfect, but we did our best to give ourselves our best selves. Thank you mm. for trying. That's good. That's good. That's good. Paul, Paul can you say a little bit about uh, what goes on chemically in the brain uh, with, with acts of intimacy and what that... Because the thing is, is... My conviction that God is never arbitrary. He doesn't say, here's a rule, and obey it just because I said it. Um, there's a reason for it, whether we can see it or not. There's reasons for it. It's always for our good. And, and, and so when we find out, sometimes we can discover what some of those reasons are. I mean, we should be able to obey even if we don't see it, but, but knowing that it's for our own good. But uh, Paul, you, this is like one of the reasons why we might have this rather strict rule about reserving sex for marriage. Yeah. And it's interesting, in a lot of ways, uh, contemporary uh, neuroscience has been able to help us uh, maybe get on, the, on, the, on the, the brain science side of what, is, what, what for centuries uh, the biblical teaching has been pointing to, namely that used within the context of a, of a committed covenant relationship, sexual intimacy is designed to bond the couple in that sort of, of, of relationship, to give it tenacity, to give it, uh, Lambert's talked about this vulnerability, this, this level of trust. And we know now with, uh, and I think we're, we're just the beginnings of really understanding this neurochemistry, but we know enough to say that, for example, in the act of, of sexual intimacy, and this starts, uh, we've seen even in, in uh, I've heard, and one study said that within 20 seconds of kissing, the chemical oxytocin is already beginning to flow in the bloodstreams of the couple, and particularly oxytocin for women, generally speaking, has very uh, rapid effects to begin to what? To begin to create a sense of trust, a sense of intimacy, and a sense of bondedness. Uh, for, for men, uh, now, both of these chemicals are flowing in both uh, men and women's veins, but men and women have different receptors levels for these things. For men, it's vasopressin that seems to be uh, what one researcher called the monogamy molecule. Hmm. And for men, this vasopressin uh, neurochemical experience creates a sense, again, of bondedness, of uh, exclusiveness. But particularly for men, what they found is that multiple partners can start to wear out, uh, one, one researcher compared it to Velcro, that multiple partners over time can begin to loosen the tenacity mm. of the effect of vasopressin in the bloodstream. It, it doesn't mean it can't be uh, you know, redirected, but, but it, it does have a, an effect. Multiple partners leads to less of a sense of being bonded to any particular person. Mm. You add to oxytocin and, and vasopressin dopamine, <laughs> The dopamine effect of sex is highly pleasurable. And you see these three, three neurochemical molecules that really are designed to give a committed couple a sense of trust, special bonding, and pleasure together that highlight, I think, the covenantal use to which mm -hmm. God uh, designed it. 
So it's like there, there's this, uh, there, all that chemical is like part of the, pro, the one fleshing process. It's designed to be part of the one fleshing process of coming together and experiencing this together. But in our culture, you know, a lot of folks, will come, they, you start that process, one flesh, one flesh, one flesh, you know, but then you, you rip it apart. Oh, this might be the one, one flesh, one flesh, and you get, you get the Velcro's there, and you rip it apart, and slowly it, it, stops, it, it, it loses its functionality. So you wonder just how damaging porn culture is to that. I mean, I, I just, uh, where we have the monogamy molecule, but everything else around it, folks, is just uh, not monogamous and pulling in a, in a different direction. So, so you're, you're, what you're saying is that they, don't frame it as like, here's a rule I, that I, I can't, but rather it's something that's supposed to set a directive of our life. You know, I, I think about Paul, like all that loophole thinking is, is like, uh, what is fornication? First base, second base, you know, how far can you go? And, and the idea is that we want to get as close to the edge as possible yeah, without crossing the line. Uh, when does it become a salvation issue? Uh, students used to sometimes ask me. It's like, okay, wrong question. Um, see, but, but it's, like, it's like this. Um, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Flee pornea. Flee. Uh, go in the opposite direction. Uh, don't be seeing how close you can get to it. And even that's not just a rule. That's in the nature of love. It's like, if, if my marriage is good, uh, reasonably good, not perfect, but at least I'm not going to be sitting there saying, you know, honey, how far can I get, how much can I get away with, with another woman before you'll divorce me? If you're asking that question, you have a really bad marriage because the goal of a marriage is not to see how, how far from it you can get, but how close you can, can you get to it? Right. And so we want to be asking how, how, how to stay, how, how to always be pursuing the Lord and getting closer to the Lord, not how much can we get away with. That's lawyer thinking. And this is where we, I always want to bash that legal paradigm that so many people operate in, where God's the judge and we're the defendant and Jesus is our lawyer. And, and that's kind of the whole salvation message. Well, if you frame your theology in the context of God being a judge, you're going to start thinking like a lawyer. Well, that, you know, what are the rules and how do I get away with it? How, how do I get the most for, for you know, as little as I can you know, sacrifice? And, um, and, and that's just the wrong kind of thinking. I think in terms of a covenant, like a marriage, rather than a contract, like a court of law sort of thing. But all this talk about okay, reserving yourself, uh, it sounds like, if I can say this, uh, some might hear this as, as, as endorsing purity culture. Now, purity culture is an evangelical movement started, I guess, about 10 years ago or so, maybe a little long before that. And, and it, was, uh, it, it was a really great attempt to try to you know, encourage kids to stay celibate until marriage. But uh, it, it also had some other things with it that has had some negative ramifications. Do you know much about that? And can you just say a little bit about purity culture and how that's not maybe what we're, all, we're endorsing here? Right. It, it stays in, some, uh, in comparison with the thing we're talking about because the, the overall implications of it, as I see college students, uh, younger, young adults as a whole, that's where it predominantly has this impact. Uh, there's this idea of this, this ideal, the, this exact 100%, you either make it or you're toast. Uh, you either uh, stay uh, sexually pure, relationally pure, everything else, do everything the right way, or, sorry, you will never, ever meet that goal. I, I almost view it like the, the college student who uh, is rocking a 4.0 in all, their whole part of education. They get that one B, that one A minus, and they will never be a 4.0 student again. The devastation. Mm. The, the, no matter how hard they work for the rest of it, it, I mean, if it happens at the end, maybe. If it happens toward the middle, then it's almost like, why even try? I will, I've lost the, the, the goal I was shooting for, yeah. and, and it's almost like, not just, I, I, I just uh, uh, don't do as well, but it's almost like it just gets worse. As opposed to having that mindset that, yes, it won't be exactly the same way as it could have been. Agreed. 
but you can still do your best and uh, to, to exceed, get, get the rest uh, A's, uh, focus on the standard, set a whole standard, and do the best 3.999 you can be for the rest of your life. And relationally speaking, it's the same idea. It's, it's where people come and say, I, uh, I've had some of those uh, adjunct instructor kind of conversations where can you reclaim your virginity? Can you, can you start over again? And it's almost like, can I get back to, can I undo something right, right, right. and get back to my 4.0? And I like to shift the conversation. It's like, yes, that's one part. There's many different life experiences that you will that that come and they go and you can't redo it again but if we shift the focus of how can you maximize your 3.99 in life then it doesn't seem like a settling as opposed to reminding ourselves of how many 3.999s there have been in the bible it's almost like god thrives on highlighting imperfection i can still do something with you can still offer your bit when if you come to your to your partner and say "Mm, i'm sorry um I know you saved yourself from marriage, the idea we were taught many years ago, and I almost did, except I had this one time, and, and fearing that the other person is going to say, ooh, sorry, that just disqualified you, is it, devastating to people, as opposed to saying, hey, I don't have this to offer, that one thing, but I have this, these other aspects, these other character developments, these other things, parts of my character uh, and experiences that I offer and I will be my best for you, so hoping that you'll be your best for me and we can make this life great. That's a different kind of conversation. And so it takes it out of that, the, the purity uh, culture kind of uh, extreme, focus on extreme. You see the all 100% or nice wow. try, uh, you're disqualified. Yeah. And so uh, if we change that part of the conversation, then we can make life That's really helpful. livable. Uh, there's also been, as I understand, at least the, the students that I talked to who came out of that, and I have, i say a dozen or so that I knew, and, and none of them were positive, unfortunately. Um, but the, the, um, there was also a, kind of a, a traditional patriarchal uh, teaching with it about the role of women and men. That was part of this whole thing, got to be yeah. subservient, whatever. Uh, it didn't really, uh, and, and it had a... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree with, with all that they said about dating, that only the guy should be the initiator, only the guy can take the initiative, the guy, guy's always got to lead and all that stuff. And so that just pushes my Bill Gothard buzzins. I, some of you probably know from, Bill Gothard was, was purity culture before purity culture. And I got married uh, with the philosophy of Bill Gothard and it lasted exactly two weeks uh, until we realized that Everything, it didn't apply to our marriage where I'm supposed to be the guy in charge of finances. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I, it, 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 just, it just didn't work. We, we encourage married couples to lead in what you're best at, all right? Yeah. And if you're both best at it, well, then both lead. But, but uh, uh, yeah, find what you're good at and do it. And, and, and then when you don't, with neither of you good at it, then you just got to divide up the chores. It kind of just goes like that. But that, yeah, the purity culture thing. There's an interesting balance here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, and you embody it. And one of the things I, I, I appreciate about you is that you always are in this kind of dialectic, this balance thing. Because on the one hand, you want to say, it's really important you save yourselves. There are ramifications. There are consequences. Uh, and, and, and it's better for you. And, and if, you, if you save yourself. On the other hand, don't make that an idol. There you go. And you can actually make you know, a good thing an idol. Or a virginity an idol. Any guy who would say, oh, well, you screwed up once and forget it. Uh, he's dealing with an idol. He's got some idol of this whole thing. And so you you want to say that there's forgiveness and there's healing exactly. and, and recovery. Okay, so there are consequences, but it's the other thing that I, I would add to that is that, yeah, okay, so, so maybe you screwed up here, you got offline there, whatever, um, and, and, and so now you don't have a 4.0. But you already didn't have a 4.0 because you're, you're, you're broken in other ways. There you go. And, and so this ideal of perfection, none of us bring our, 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 our spouse a perfect package. We just don't. We're broken in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's part of not making it idle. Don't make it the super sin, the super thing that's going to now destroy your life. Exactly. Um, 
All right, Paul, um, the, the, you know, traditionally, as we taught in this series, uh, marriages were arranged. They, they were covenants between families. Um, now, we've evolved in this culture to the point where we don't do that at all anymore. Um, rather, it's more of a shopping market kind of thing. Our individualistic consumer uh, culture has created an individualistic, individualistic consumer way of getting into marriage, where you shop around, and then you just choose what's the best product, and what can I get the most, and whatever, blah, 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 and you get married, and it's always about you for your own happiness and all of that. Uh, what, what are the upsides and downsides that you see with our contemporary dating culture? Hmm. Yeah, well, this really does tie into the purity culture uh, discussion because in a lot of ways, I think 1990s purity culture, I think we really got started, uh, was an attempt to say, hey, what's happened since the 1960s sexual revolution, kind of a sexual, increasingly sexual free-for-all, doesn't reflect Jesus's thoughts on sexuality. We got to get back to the Bible. And of course, while that's a great intention, uh, Lambers, you've shared some of the downsides of that. Greg, you've mentioned a few more. Um, I'll just add, there's, there's, there's even more be, uh, downsides beyond that. Notice the very idea that in purity culture, we're saving ourselves for a future spouse assumes that marriage is the only outcome here. It, it's once again wrapped into the idea that, well, of course, we're all going to get married, right? Like, that's the point of this whole thing. And it leaves the calling of, of being an unmarried person within the church uh, completely off the table. And, and, and uh, those who don't get the spouse, don't get the one, now are, are living this, this pitiful life. Uh, it also, you know, it, 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 it basically framed women as a sexual temptation to men. Well, that's right, yeah. Uh, that, that was the whole, I think, a, a component of patriarchy. So yeah, there was a lot of downsides to it. In essence, I think what purity culture did is it wanted to find a biblical model of dating, but instead what it did is it went back about one decade before the sexual revolution and recovered 1950s American dating uh, courtship practices and said, this is what the Bible teaches. Mm. Um, and of course, the Bible, Greg, to your question now, the Bible was written in a culture way before 1950s American dating, it was written in a traditional uh, uh, institutional view of marriage where families arrange the marriages. And uh, this is a very different model. I don't think we're called to recover arranged marriage either. Uh, there's some really good things about modern dating compared to my parents arranged my marriage, right? Uh, first off, uh, parent choices can be just as selfish and contractual as couples' choices. Uh, we know that in the ancient world, a lot of parents didn't choose the best for their kids in terms of a spouse. They chose the best families to marry into yeah. for financial and social reasons, right? So every, every form of marriage and, and courtship and dating can be selfish. Um, I think there's something wise about giving the two people who are going to be in the marriage the greatest amount of say-so in who they get married to. That just seems wise to me. And the, the you know modern dating allows that. But to your point, Greg, there's also some downsides to, to at least dating as we see it today. I'd call it the consumer dating model, right? Uh, the way consumer culture has shaped our view of things has now begun to affect our view of each other. Uh, when, when dating is turned into seeing each other as commodities 
to be tried uh, and either fail or succeed in making me personally happy. Well, we've just turned romantic relationships into self-centered contractual events, not agape-oriented, other-focused questions of relationality. Uh, and that's a problem, I think, for, for consumer dating. Mm. Uh, one one uh, uh, researcher I put it said, when you do that, what you end up doing in our culture is having multiple serial dating relationships. And that means you learn to both give and take your heart back rather quickly. Uh, within an, an evening, you can fall in love. And all it takes is one bad date to decide this isn't the one for me and I take my heart back. Mm. And, and this, this researcher said, in a sense, what modern consumer dating is, it's training us to rehearse for divorce. Wow. If we get to be so good at giving and taking our hearts back, what makes us think that standing before a, a congregation for 20 minutes and saying I do is going to make this one any different? And so how do we move from consumeristic contractual dating to really thinking about dating as an agape love relationship, right? Um, I don't have a lot of, uh, in fact, I have no rules or formulas for this, but here's, I think, three principles that are, are, are I would propose kingdom principles for uh, dating. One, uh, what I call the, the covenant sibling principle. And that's just to remember this. Whenever we're in a romantic dating relationship with someone who's also following Jesus, trying to pursue the path of Jesus. That means we already have a covenant sibling relationship with them under the new covenant of Jesus. And they are not just a consumeristic person to fulfill my romantic needs. They are literally my eternal sister or brother forever. And that has to, um, our, our romantic relationship should be seen in light of our eternal sibling relationship. Mm. I will always be this person's sibling. Uh, secondly, I'd say the wisdom principle. Let's face it, romantic relationships with all that dopamine and oxytocin going on that we talked about, they are complicated. They can be fickle. Um, they're risky. People get really hurt in these things. So we need wisdom. Uh, and that leads, I think, to the third principle, what I'll just call the community principle, that, uh, you know, the old saying, it takes a, a village to raise a child. I would propose it takes a village to raise a healthy dating relationship, a healthy marriage. It just takes a village for any healthy relationships mm. to exist within. It takes community. Uh, within community, kingdom community, we can find with that wisdom and discernment we said we need from the second principle, we can find uh, encouragement and support, and we can find the challenge and accountability that I need when my own feelings start to treat this dating partner in contractual, consumeristic, uh, unagapeic ways. Mm. I need my community to remind me, hey, everything, including dating, is to be done in the ways of Jesus. That was worth the price of admission right there, if you ask me. I think that was, just, that, that, that was solid. That was solid. I, I would think also, if you're really seriously taking into consideration, I mean, this idea of the, of the church's family, so you're going out with your brother or sister, uh, that would, if you're serious about it, I would think help curb the sexual drive right there. I mean, I'm just like, I said, 
It's just, okay, uh, let, let, last question. Actually, it's not a question. I want to make a statement and see how you guys respond to it. Um, uh, and this is, uh, this is uh, the elephant in the room, I think. Um, so here's the thing. Back in the good old days when they had arranged marriages, usually people would get married uh, right around the time that their hormones are kicking in. Uh, 13, 14, uh, back in the old days, nowadays kids' hormones kick in a little earlier. But uh, So there was this idea of, of waiting while you're hyper horny for long periods of time before you get married. It was just not there. Uh, nowadays, people put off getting married uh, on average. What, what is it? It's like 27 now or 28. Um, which it traditionally is really late. And so a lot of folks are put waiting off for a lot of different social reasons we, we can get into. But that means there's a long period of time between your, when your hormones kick in and when you get married. Uh, and that makes the, whole, the, the sexual ethic of Jesus very challenging. Um, one way of, uh, it raises the question of masturbation. There, I'm just going to come out and say it. There. It raises this question, which I preached a whole sermon on back in 1990-something, so you can go back and check on that. I forget the title is, but I'm sure it starts with M. Um, <laughs> so he, here's the thing. Often, you know, that is often just associated with pornography. It's like, it, it's, 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 so it's just bad. It's all, it's, that is as bad as pornography or anything else, so just don't do it. Of course, 98% of guys do, and I, I don't know what the percentage is for women. Last I read, it was like 78%, uh, or maybe they just lie more. We don't know, but, but uh, uh, it's going to happen. And so, so here, here's, here's my philosophy on this. What's wrong with masturbation is, is that the primary thing is that uh, you're thinking about sex outside of the marriage covenant. Uh, and, and then you train your brain to think about sex outside of the marriage covenant, and often sex outside of monogamy. And these days, with the pornography we've seen being so available, it's often associated with very non-monogamous stuff, like porn. Um, what if, from the start, we talked to our kids, even before the sex drives came in, and said, here's the deal, you're going to be having these drives, and, and, and uh, one of the things that, that might happen with you, it, it was uh, self-stimulation, however you want to put it, um, and just try, try to discipline your mind to think about a future marriage partner in the context of marriage, a person that you love. And to start reinforcing that monogamous, one person, I love you kind of thing. Um, giving them a release valve, if you will, uh, so that, that would help be more chaste on dating and, and, and you know, whatever. Um, but but it, it lays down the pattern of thought first. Because if, you're, if early on that dopamine stuff, all that pleasurable stuff gets associated with kinky sex outside of marriage kind of thing. Kinky sex inside of marriage is fine. But outside of marriage, no. <laughs> well, then, then it's really hard to retrain, to retrofit. You got all those images that got burned into your brain. And, and you're going to be trying to push those out the rest of your life. And... That, for most people, at least most guys, I think, and maybe it's true of women too, but, uh, or maybe they just lie more, I don't know, but uh, it's, that's, a, that's a, a job you're going to have to be doing anyways. It, to be disciplined in your mind about sex, get used to it. That's going to be a, so early on, get used to being disciplined as opposed to being undisciplined and then trying to now, in, 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 against all that momentum, being disciplined against it. So monogamous masturbation, what do you think about that concept? I should write a book on that title. I bet it would sell well. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> You're a therapist. What do you think about masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> we 
we talk, love this is how we are with Hills. We're just going to be out loud about stuff. <laughs> love it. Oh, well, practically speaking, I like the way you I should you, have given you, a warning on this is a PG thing. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, it just changed over. If they're now. old enough to understand what we're talking about, they're old enough to understand what we're talking about. Nice and they need to hear it. That's, that's me. I philosophy. I just recovered. I like how you, I like how you describe the, the discipline aspect of it because it gets to the, to the heart of it as opposed to the, you know, you did or you didn't. Uh, how dare you? You should feel bad all night. Go repent tomorrow. As opposed to what standards are you setting? What, what habits are you um, preparing yourself for? One of the, uh, the dichotomies that come as a whole is, as you start off uh, talking about, is a very common one that uh, uh, masturbation is often associated with pornography or any other type of uh, picture or, or experience outside of uh, some, the person you're in covenant relationship with. And so if we take that as a, as a starting point, then we say, okay, well, if your uh, masturbation is focused on uh, associating pleasure, just whether it be hormonally or just relationally or just what your mind is doing, associating pleasure and investing that into somebody who or somebody's who is not the person you're committed to your relationship with, then again, practically speaking, that makes it more difficult uh, long term when you get into that long-term relationship to shift that association. Uh, I've always used to, and people can actually say, I've, I've experienced in, um, in uh, therapy, well, I, it's just difficult for me uh, to, to uh, get to orgasm or, or to finish with, 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 my, with my wife, with my husband, uh, because, well, it's just not the same as I've gotten used to over the years. The, the habits that I've set, the standard that I set, and I have to learn new things. So even just on a practical sense, it starts there. But then even if you're uh, associated with people who say, well, I just don't look at pornography. I just only think about my future spouse. I like the standard set associated with uh, a healthy relationship. But if you say, well, I'm just picturing my future spouse, I say, that's amazing that you can see into the future, that you don't know exactly what your future spouse is going to look like. Because if you look, if you only are thinking about your future spouse and then you meet somebody and love somebody and marry somebody who hasn't been your future spouse picture in your head, then again, that person still has the comparison of meeting up to your standard. We haven't talked about right or wrong yet. We're talking about the standard uh, and the habits that we set hmm. moving forward. And then if you even put it into marriage, well, well, we're married now. It's different. I'm not thinking about uh, pornography. I'm not thinking about uh, my future spouse. What about, I'm thinking about my spouse, you see, because uh, well, she was mad at me the other day and, uh, and I was really stressed and tense. And so I'm thinking about her and I say, yeah, you're thinking about a herd that's smiling at you right now, not the herd that's mad over here. So you're picturing, you're almost fantasizing about a, a wife that doesn't exist, at least not, not right now. And so to a certain degree, it, we're taking that tension. Instead of letting that tension draw us closer and focus our mind on what can I do to repair this, we say, I don't, I don't need you. I can do this by myself. And it puts a tear in that relationship a little bit. I mean, again, right or wrong, don't care. What's drawing you closer, in the future or right now? If we do that, then at least it changes the question. We can, ex we can ask ourselves, what can I do to prepare for my future partner, to prepare for my partner right now, to draw, am I doing things, it's not about the right or wrong, but am I lining up everything with things that are healthy and promoting and strengthening the relationship that I will have or I'm having right now, if we have that, then it changes the conversation. But how do you, uh, oh man, we, we gotta quit here, but oh, isn't it, it seems to me it's natural for people to think about a future spouse. She might look like this, or he might look like this, or he might, you, you daydream about that. Yeah. And I feel like you don't know how you'd masturbate without having some visual image of somebody. <laughs> I mean, Virtually impossible. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we agree on that. <laughs> yes. So that's the take yeah. home here. It's virtually impossible. <laughs> 
All right. All right. Well, it, it, so I, I, I would, if I had to do it over again, I would have that discussion early. Uh, all the stats show, I mean, I was surprised to find out how early kids are sexualized these days. It, it's just, Adam, 11 years old for, for boys, on average, their first viewing of porn. So I had that discussion early, and, and uh, yeah, just be very out loud about it. And the more open you can be with that, and, and uh, just be, it's just a reality, like we're doing here. Just have that talk. I just have that talk. Uh, I, it's going to happen. Uh, in all probability, it may not be ideal, but there again, what is ideal? And, and, and you know, you have to give the warnings about, you know, uh, don't get addicted to this, you can't do all the kind of parameters you have, but to have some outlet, I think, is, is absolutely vital given how long we wait till we get married. All right, all right. Well, uh, thanks for listening in on this discussion. I hope that it's been informative and applicable to uh, various areas of your life. Um, we have our gathering groups. We encourage folks to get into the gathering groups and process the material here with other folks. Uh, and you can find those online. Uh, if you have any need that could use prayer, uh, we invite you to stick around. Uh, we have got prayer out in the, in the, in the, uh, up here. Uh, if you're in-house, and we've got prayer um, online, if you're in the outhouse, I'm only kidding, uh, if you're uh, uh, online, so you can, you, can, you can check out that, I have no idea where that came from. Uh, am I missing anything? Uh, I think that's, what? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and on Tuesdays we have the Muse cast. Uh, don't forget about the fundraiser that we're, that we're involved now, and really pray about uh, how to give to that to support uh, our endeavor to, for the church to make a difference in homelessness, not just Woodland Hills, but the church at large, that God may be glorified, amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the gift of sex, for the gift of singleness, for the gift of marriage, for every good gift comes from the Father above. Help us, Lord, to discern as your people how this applies to our life as we walk in a way we aspire to live uh, as you lived according to your ideals, according to your, because we know that everything you've said to us is for our own good, and, 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 and we receive that. Be glorified in, in our lives and in all relationships in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Say hi to each other as you leave.